Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. There's been a great deal of social research done, especially in the last couple years since COVID, that will show that church attendance in America is on the decrease. Uh, There was a Gallup poll done in the year 2020 that found for the first time since they began tracking such things about 80 years ago, uh, for the first time there was less than a majority of Americans who considered themselves a member of some sort of religious institution, whether that was a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or something like that. And hearing a statistic like that, I don't know about you, but for me it, it causes some grief and I think it should. You might not need me to tell you statistics this morning. You might feel that grief in yourself, in your own circle of family or friends, whatever it might be, as you've seen people that you have that you love as they have disengaged from the church. You can find that a statistic like that might lead us to assume the worst about our world, about the people around us. We might assume that, well, that must mean everything's going downhill. There's absolutely nothing we can do about it. We just need to hold on for as long as we can. But it seems like while our culture may be moving away from what we would consider traditional expressions of religion, there is just as much interest in spiritual matters as ever, although it gets packaged in different ways. There may may be less interest in our nation at this point in religion, but there seems to be just as much interest in spirituality as ever. And those terms are really similar in their dictionary definitions, but they get used in very different ways. Religion sounds constrictive, but spirituality sounds liberating. Uh, Religion sounds like you have to follow a bunch of rules. Spirituality sounds like you get to make your own rules. Uh, uh, Religion sounds like some kind of corrupt institution that just wants your money. Spirituality sounds like individual freedom. Religion sounds like a building you have to go to once or twice or three times or four times a week. Spirituality sounds like I get to do whatever I want. I get to go spend the morning in nature and call that worship. Those two things may play themselves out, they may sound very different, but at the end of the day, they're trying to get at the same thing, whether either one of them would acknowledge it or not. We're in this sermon series called Shadows. We've been looking at good things that our world aspires to, but things that can only be truly good when they're understood through the lens of Jesus. We started this series by talking about the idea of justice, how our world longs for justice, But we will not know true justice until we understand that Jesus experienced injustice on our behalf, which promises us that God will one day make everything right. Last week we talked about love. We saw our world aspires to love, but it aspires to love as something that exists just for my benefit, and Jesus shows us that true love serves. And today, continuing in that theme, we're talking about this idea of spirituality, So what does Jesus have to say to a world that is searching for spirituality but doesn't have much of an idea of what it is searching for? Well, to try to answer that question, we're going to look today at a story that comes in John chapter 3. If you have a Bible and want to open it up there, the words are going to be on the screen as we we read. But John chapter 3 tells us about a conversation Jesus has with someone named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is someone who is searching for spiritual answers. 
Now, to be totally honest, if Nicodemus was around today or if we look at him for who he is, he is not a type of person that fits the stereotype of what might come to our mind when we hear someone say they're interested in pursuing spirituality. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. That means he is committed to observing the Old Testament law as to its fullest extent. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious authority of the day. So Nicodemus is not only a fan of religious institutions, he's a leader within one. And yet at the same time, he's searching. He's searching like so many, maybe like so many of us. He's looking for something and wondering if maybe Jesus can help. So I want to walk through John 3, verses 1 to 21 today. And as we go throughout this story, I just want to try to pull out a few lessons that I think maybe we can learn of what it means to pursue spirituality in Jesus. First few verses I want to read, verses 1 to 8. John writes that there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And maybe that's just a detail. Maybe that's just telling us that Nicodemus is a busy guy. He's had a full day. The first chance he's had to sit down with Jesus is after the sun goes down, maybe. But if you look at how John talks about light and darkness throughout his entire gospel, it would seem to suggest to us that there's a little more going on. The next time in this gospel that John will tell us about someone doing something at night, it will be in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper. Judas gets up, he walks out to go meet up with the religious authorities to betray Jesus, and as he's walking out, John tells us it was night. There's darkness. And so, sure, it might just literally be night, but there might be more going on here in the world and the heart of Nicodemus. John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone, but that the world did not recognize him. Later in this passage, we're going to read that Jesus came as light, but people preferred the darkness. So all of that should tell us that the literal darkness around Jesus and Nicodemus as they have this conversation is not as important as the spiritual darkness surrounding Nicodemus. He may think he has things figured out, but he's stumbling around in the dark spiritually trying to find his way. Jesus knows this. And so he jumps straight into the matter. If you, if you notice, as you read, Nicodemus starts with pleasantries. He says, Jesus, you, we, you're obviously someone who's important. You're saying and doing a lot of interesting things. God must obviously be with you. And, Nic- and, or, excuse me, and Jesus doesn't respond at all. He doesn't say, well, that's how, how kind of you. I really appreciate it. I'm glad someone notices what I've been doing in the world. Jesus jumps straight in and says, you have to be born again. Which seems a little odd. 
we've all had conversations, I'm sure, where you're talking with someone and you think to yourself, boy, this is not where I thought this was going. I thought we were talking about A, turns out you want to talk about C. And that may be what's happening here. Just can't take a compliment. Maybe he wasn't paying attention. He's being rude. Maybe. But it seems like maybe he's trying to get at something more. And I think that might be the first lesson we need to learn in this passage. Jesus is in the driver's seat. If we come to Jesus searching, that's a good thing. We absolutely should come to him, but we should not expect him to allow us to run the conversation. He's in control because he has come to reveal who God is and what it means to have life with him. So Jesus begins speaking about what it truly means to be a part of God's people, which doesn't seem to be a question that Nicodemus thought he needed to have answered. I mean, in the mind of someone like Nicodemus, being a part of the kingdom of God obviously comes either through being born an Israelite, becoming Jewish, or going through some process of conversion to become Jewish, and then from there committing to obey God's law. But Jesus seems to think it requires more. He says to Nicodemus, someone with an impeccable spiritual resume, that if you actually want to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to be completely reborn through water and the Spirit. Nicodemus doesn't seem to have a category in his brain for this. I mean, the common line of thinking that Nicodemus probably has in his head right now, sure, uh, people who weren't born an Israelite, they need to go through a conversion process. They need to do something to uh, get right with God, to signify that they are leaving behind the life they've known before. They're entering into a new life as a part of God's people. But I mean, if you're born into the right family like Nicodemus is, you're in the clear And so what Jesus says here is almost like asking someone without eyesight to try to appreciate a sunset. Nicodemus is thinking of physical birth, still thinking that being a part of God's people is a matter of being born into the right family, and if that's what it takes, then trying to restart that process is impossible. But Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth, which might not be as complicated biologically, but is just as drastic spiritually. A birth changes everything for the person being born and for the people around them. Some of my really good friends just had their first child a couple weeks ago, and life looks very different for them now than it did two weeks ago or a year ago. It looks very different for that that child than it did two weeks ago because a birth changes everything. And Jesus says entering his kingdom is that drastic. To be reborn in water and the Spirit, to pass through the waters of baptism into life with God reorders everything. It involves a rejection of what we had known before, a step into life on God's terms. It is turning away from habits we've we've formed, reorganizing our beliefs we have about ourselves or our world in light of what Jesus has to say. Jesus comes to us in the midst of our spiritual searching and tells us that this is what spiritual life truly looks like. It's not a matter of finding our own way on some path to the best of our abilities. It is a matter of being reborn into God's kingdom. And if that sounds like a lot to take in, which it is for Nicodemus, Jesus would say that it is because God moves like the wind. You don't control the wind. You understand it to the best of your ability, and you adjust accordingly. Last summer, Whitney and I were having dinner at a restaurant downtown outside one night, and it was windy. And as we're eating, Whitney made the statement to me that she had heard or read somewhere once that Rochester was actually windier than Chicago. 
Now, based solely on the evidence that Chicago is called the Windy City, I felt like it was a good idea to argue with her because I don't know why. Uh, she's not here today, so I'm just being honest. So I, so I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Chicago. It's the Windy City. I mean, they don't just hand out a title like that. There's no way that that's actually true. And, and since Witt's not here today, I can tell you that I've done some research this week, and in 2022, Rochester was the second windiest city in America behind Lubbock, Texas. So I tell you that story mainly to confess to you that Whitney's always right, and sometimes I have the audacity to question that. But more than that, I tell you that story because my guess is you have had the same experience I have had of being in downtown Rochester in the middle of winter, and the wind is biting, and there is nothing you can do about it. Wind does what wind is going to do. And in the same way, Jesus says that through him... God is moving, and it is not something to be manipulated or controlled. It's the wind. And when the wind is blowing, you can fight it, or you can figure out how to move with it. I mean, if you're out in a boat and the wind is blowing you across a lake, you can row as hard as you can against it and exhaust yourself in the process, or you can put up a sail and let it take you where it is going. Jesus is saying that in him, the wind of God's spirit is blowing, and for those trying to find God, they can try to manipulate it if they want, but it will not work. The only way to truly experience what God is doing is to be reborn by God's spirit, which is the second lesson I think we should take away from this conversation, that spiritual life with Jesus is rebirth. Our culture's approach to spirituality seems to be that it's a nice thing to add in once you get everything else sorted out. I mean, if you have some downtime on the weekends, maybe you can go to church. If you can't make that work, maybe try to meditate or something like that during your lunch break. If you can't make that work, I don't know, take some deep breaths while you're sitting at a red light. I, I don't know. Whatever you can work into your schedule that's going to make you feel better. If, and Jesus seems to have a different perspective. If we desire life with him, it will mean rebirth a complete reordering of life. That can be a lot to take in. Or at least it is for Nicodemus. Picking up in verse 9, he asks Jesus, how can this be? Jesus responds, you are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Jesus lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Uh, clarity comes when you go to the source of a matter. I mean, if you're reading a book or a poem or listening to a song or something like that, you may see the words and have your own ideas of what they might be about, what the author was thinking and what it means for them and for you and things like that. But if you could sit down with the person that wrote the words, they could tell you exactly what they were thinking when they wrote those words. And whether Nicodemus recognizes it right away or not, in this moment as he comes to Jesus, he has come to the source, the authority on spiritual matters and what Jesus is bringing 
is not exactly what Nicodemus was expecting, even though Jesus will say he should have been ready for it. And if Nicodemus, a spiritual authority in his day, can't understand what Jesus is saying now, he and everyone else is going to have a hard time getting their heads around the rest of the story. I mean, Jesus essentially says at this point he's teaching 2 plus 2 equals 4, and if you can't get your head around that, you're going to be in trouble once we get to calculus. So to try to give Nicodemus a glimpse, Jesus points us back to Numbers chapter 21. This is in the midst of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and once again, they start to complain against Moses and against God about their situation. They make the statement in Numbers 21.5, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. As they've wandered in the wilderness, God has fed them miraculously with food falling from heaven every single day. And now they refer to it as this miserable food. I mean, you've probably heard complaining from the backseat on a road trip before, but this is a step beyond that. They're complaining that they don't have any water. If you're reading the book of Numbers, the very last chapter, they're out of water and God performs a miracle to give them water. I think they're going to be okay, but they're complaining against Moses and against God. So, because of their sin, their rebellion against God, poisonous snakes come into the camp, which stops their complaining, to say the least. And Moses prays to God that it would stop, and God tells Moses, go make a snake out of bronze, and put it up on a pole in the middle of camp, and anyone that gets bitten by a snake, they can look to that, that snake up being lifted up in the camp, and they will be healed. It's an odd little story, but Jesus points to it here to explain something about who he is. He seems to be saying that just like how looking at a lifted up snake would lead to healing for the Israelites who are dying from venom, looking at him as he is being lifted up will lead to our healing from the poison of sin. Which gives us our next lesson, I think, that we can't understand spiritual life with Jesus until we see Jesus being lifted up. He doesn't fully explain all that means here, but it's a preview. He's bringing something far different from what the world around him was expecting. He hasn't come to play the religious games and politics of his day. He's come to bring new birth into God's kingdom by being lifted up. And right there is where we find true spiritual life. It doesn't come from looking at ourselves doesn't come through our own experiences. It comes through looking to Jesus, lifted up on the cross for all the world to see. It's there that we find our healing from the sickness of sin and death that has been plaguing us our entire lives that we are trying to escape from, whether we recognize it or not, and don't know how. When we see Jesus lifted up on the cross on our behalf, we find life. All of this is possible because of the love of God, which John explains to us in these last few verses. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. 
Light has come into the world, but the people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's entirely clear, but it, it seems, as you read the text, that at verse 16, John shifts from giving us this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus to giving us his commentary. Because John wants us to see what Nicodemus hasn't yet at this point. That Jesus has come into the world because of the love of God. And when we believe in him, we can have true life. And that is what leads John to pen some of the most famous words that have ever been written. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. These verses show us both the problem Jesus poses and the solution he provides. Because in a world bent on individual spirituality where we can all do what we think is best for us, the message of Jesus is a problem because it says spirituality is not some search. It has been clearly revealed because Jesus is light in the darkness, hope in the face of judgment, exposure of our rebellion in a world that would much rather assume we're okay. But the solution, which we need to learn, is that Jesus has come to bring life because of the love of God. God did not abandon us when we wandered away. He sent his son to come after us when we could not have found our way on our own. And that sure might sound closed-minded, but it only is if it's not accurate. We wouldn't call a doctor closed-minded for coming to you and saying you have a disease and the only solution is to follow their recommended treatment. We would be grateful that someone who knows what they're doing has found the problem and knows the solution. That is who Jesus is. This chapter ends without telling us Nicodemus' response, which is maybe a lesson in itself that searching for spirituality is a process. But Nicodemus isn't done dealing with Jesus after John chapter 3, which I think tells us something more important that no matter how disoriented or confused we might be, Jesus is not done with us. We keep reading in John, get to the end of John chapter 7, and Jesus has really kicked the hornet's nest of the religious leaders. They are mad at him. They're trying to get him arrested and done away with. And it's this almost funny scene, at least to me as I read it, because the religious leaders, they're so mad, they, they tell the temple guards, go arrest him in the temple. Go arrest Jesus. And the temple guards come back a little bit later without Jesus, and the religious leaders want to know why, and they say, I, no one taught like this guy. I've never been or known anyone that's such a good preacher that it keeps them from getting arrested. But apparently, Jesus was such a teacher. And the religious leaders are mad. They're trying to figure out some way to get rid of Jesus. They say in John 7, at verses 47 and 48, they say to the temple guards, what, has he deceived you also? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? The religious leaders are are so bold to say Jesus can't be who he claims to be because those of us in the know, we, we, we 
are seeing through his schemes. We're not believing in him. No one who is as much in the loop as we are would ever believe in someone like this. And then ironically, here from Nicodemus, if we jump down to verse 50, John says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and, and was one of their own number, asked, uh, does, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, I have to assume they scoffed. <laughs> Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. All Nicodemus does, he sticks his head out just long enough to ask a question. He's pretty much immediately shouted down. But it's interesting that in the midst of this argument and the religious leaders scheming together, they're saying no one among us is so ignorant as to believe in Jesus. Nicodemus raises his hand and comes to Jesus' defense. Then later, in John chapter 19, after Jesus has died on the cross, John tells us that there were two men that came to take Jesus' body down from the cross and, and place him in the tomb and give him a proper, respectable burial. And one of the men was Nicodemus. And I can't help but wonder if as Nicodemus is taking Jesus down off the cross as he's pulling those nails out, as he's wrapping him up, preparing him for burial, if, he's, if he has any memory of that conversation he had with Jesus three years before when Jesus said, one day I'm going to be lifted up, and when I am, you will see the way to eternal life. I don't know where Nicodemus' spiritual searching took him, but I know he had a front row seat as this story unfolded. And he saw Jesus lifted up, giving up his life so that anyone who says yes to Jesus might be reborn into eternal life with him. And because Jesus has done that, Nicodemus and us as well can know that the way into life with God is open. Spirituality is not a roundabout of self-discovery. It is a path into the life with God we've been created for, opened up for us by Jesus. Our spiritual life, this is maybe the last thing we need to learn, is life on Jesus' terms, as it should be. He doesn't come to us to aid our agendas. He comes to us and says he is the son of God and we need to be born again and we will not fully understand all that means until we look at him being lifted up on the cross and his death on the cross opens up for us the eternal life with God we were created for. And that starts now and it stretches into eternity, which means that we don't have as much control as we would like to think we do. Most of the time, our culture's approach to spirituality seems to be that it is a form of self-improvement, just like taking up exercise or changing your diet, trying to learn a new hobby or something like that. And that framework tells us that we can take what we want, learn what we can, and decide ultimately for ourselves. And that is not how Jesus comes to us. Life with Jesus is not like the Force in Star Wars where you just need to learn how to use it and then you can do whatever you want for your own sake. Jesus doesn't come to us asking us what our agendas are that we would like for him to fulfill. He comes with his agenda. And he tells us to get on board because God is moving like the wind. You don't direct the wind. You don't bend the spirit of God to your will. You are transformed by it. 
and from that transformation step into the life God desires for you. And fully understand how that can sound overbearing. I mean, the whole idea of seeking spirituality instead of religion is to be able to get away from messages that tell you don't ask questions and just fall in line. And that might be how Jesus sounds at this point. But the conversation shifts when we understand the one who is telling us to follow his agenda. Jesus is a corrupt CEO that's only looking out for himself and is, is telling you what to do so that he can build himself up at your expense. He's the best doctor you will ever find, telling you the one way you can be cured. He is a friend that knows what you're going through and will never leave your side as you endure it. He is a leader who sacrifices himself for the good of his people. He's the one who has conquered death so that we might overcome it as well. So sure, you don't have control but you probably didn't have as much control as you thought you had to begin with. But you are loved by God more than you will ever know. And every one of us have been invited into a continually deeper experience of that love. God himself has come to dwell in our midst through his spirit. That is the spiritual connection that each and every one of us are searching for at the deepest level. So whoever you are, step into that life more deeply. Be transformed through the presence of God's spirit. And as you do that, you will find that the life Jesus invites us into is life together. Spirituality in our world tends to be something that you just go and figure out on your own, do what you want, which can then seep into our thinking that we just need Jesus and not the church. But it is pretty hard to read any portion of the New Testament without running into something about how we are called to live life with one another. The church is called the Bride of Christ. And I don't know many good husbands that will let you get away with telling them that you like them but you can't stand their spouse. And you might be hearing that and think, oh, sure, the preacher wants me to go to church. And yeah, I do. But it's not about me, and it's not about this. It's not about Marion. This isn't me saying you better go to church. This is me saying that you need life with Jesus, and life with Jesus is only fully experienced in a community with others who are doing the same. So I hope you step more deep into life with Jesus. I pray for that. And that as you do that, you step more deeply into relationships around you with brothers and sisters in Christ as you follow Jesus alongside them. That is life on Jesus' terms. It's the life we were created for. So step into it. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 